Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lance Thunder, and today I'm going to be joined by co-host Lizette Varon Carabajal as we interview Professor Paul Ramirez about his recent book, Enlightened Immunity, Mexico's Experiments with Disease Prevention in the Age of Reason, out from Stanford University Press in 2018. Enlightened Immunity explores how lay people impacted the new medical techniques and technologies implemented by the imperial state in the final decades of Spanish rule in colonial Mexico. More than a scholarly intervention, though, Ramirez seeks to answer a very pragmatic and timely question. How and why do successful public health measures succeed? Through a surprising, nuanced, and complicated answer, Ramirez broadens our understanding of who counts as a vital actor in public health programs, with great consequences both for the historiography of science in Latin America and for the medical humanities generally. I hope that you will enjoy our conversation with Professor Ramirez. Uh, Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Uh, We're so excited to have you here. Can we start this interview by perhaps you telling us how you came to this project, how it came together, and how it changed um, throughout your writing process? Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me. I, I really appreciate uh, the work you're both doing to, to facilitate this exchange. Um, this is an exciting opportunity for me. So thanks again for doing this. Um, so I guess I could answer it in a in a in a personal autobiographical way and a historiographic way. So maybe I'll try, I'll try both kinds of response. The personal one has to do with um, the fact that I was, I was, I wanted to be a physician. I really thought I was going to be a doctor for a very long time. And so all through, through college, I was taking courses in chemistry and biology and, um, you know, thinking about the kinds of questions that I suppose we would, we would sort of, um, lump under the under the label bioethics uh questions bioethical kinds of questions uh today so having to do with trust and 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 patient uh you know healer interactions and uh questions about life and death and the right to treat and and those sorts of things at a basic level how uh, physicians establish trust uh among their among their patients and what right they have to that trust um, and so these are questions that I've been thinking about for a very long time. And so when it became clear to me that uh, I wasn't going to be a physician for all kinds of reasons, I mean, I'm just not, I don't like blood. Uh, yeah, I don't really like, you know, uh, kind of squeamish. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons that would have been a bad career decision for me. Um, I guess I kind of fell into this topic on um, epidemic crises and public health and the provision of medicine in early modern um, uh, 19th century Mexico. Um, so that, that's kind of, and you, you know, you don't, I think one doesn't have the capacity to explain those decisions and maybe even know that they are decisions that are being made, uh, until, until they've already passed. It's sort of a retrospective kind of imposition of meaning. I think that I've been doing here, trying to understand how it was that I came into this, uh, under this project. And I guess, I guess that's one way. I mean, I just, I, I fell into it because that was, that had been an interest for a very long time. Um, the more, I guess, the more proximate or immediate historical moment was this um, this book that was basically placed in my hands by my advisor in graduate school. It was uh, the book is Escudo de Armas de México. It's it's by uh, a Creole cleric, uh, a priest uh, who who was a very prolific writer in the 18th century. Wrote very difficult kinds of prose. We call it. Uh, 
Baroque. Uh, it was this, this style of writing that was full of um, metaphors and, and literary tropes and, and, and speculations about the cosmos and, and its interaction with the world. But it was this book that was basically a chronicle of a plague that hit Mexico City in uh, 1736, 1737, 1738. And it was written by this, this man, Cayetano Cabrera y Quintero, uh, to commemorate the intervention of Our Lady of Guadalupe in that moment. And she was supposed to have been the saint that saved Mexico from its misery during this outbreak of, of uh, what, what scholars think it was typhus. It was called Matasahuar. And um, I got into this book. It was it's just an enormous tome. I mean, it was actually physically heavy to carry around. I had to, I had to plan ahead if I was going to use it in any public space because it, it was so big like 10 books and 60 chapters, but it was full of uh, saints, you know, moving around homes and communities and barrios and in, out in procession. And, um, and uh, it, was, it was in the mold of these medieval plague chronicles that sort of, you know, they, they track the, the occurrences of outbreaks and try to understand what's happening, try to make sense out of what is very painful and, and you know, senseless at the time for a lot of people. And I was just blown away by the way that people seemed to be engaging with these um, often statues, but sometimes paintings and other kinds of images of, of saints in Christ and so forth. And rather than see that, you know, that chronicle, which is a, you know, a medieval genre, it, it, as, in a, as opposed somehow to what came after, which had to do with sort of the intervention, the introduction of vaccines and, and, and the more widespread use of inoculation, I was thinking about that chronicle as prefiguring in some ways, you know, the, the modern medical interventions that come later. That, that is, they, they, they were both the antecedent, these, these, these rituals were the antecedent to um, modern medical practice, uh, that is vaccination and smallpox uh, that ends up being introduced to Mexico, you know, something like 60, 70 years after this, uh, this 1737 outbreak in Mexico City. And so, you know, that, that book, that chronicle became the point of departure for a study on uh, modern preventive medicine. Uh, I, guess, I guess it's sort of counterintuitive that it would be, but that's the way I've been thinking about those rituals as sort of, uh, you know, foreshadowing uh, modern medicine. And that's sort of what the book is, is about in a way. It's about all of the rituals that mediate the, the provision of, of medicine. So, you know, I, I guess if I think about it in those ways, it is really my own personal interest in medical practice and the ethics of medicine, but also this question that was opened up about the way that natural and supernatural intersected or intertwined in this um, really difficult to read <laughs> uh, uh, chronicle, Escudo de Armas de, de Mexico. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. Yeah, and and um, so I mean, so this most of the book it's about um, you know these immunization campaigns near the end of the of the eighteenth century, um, and can you for listeners who aren't too familiar with this history just explain a little bit about what these were and and kind of where they fit in the overall um, 
reforms of the empire at this time and, and what you're trying to do here as far as looking at them differently. Right. So this is um, the, the, the traditional way of dealing with smallpox outbreaks in particular was to inoculate uh, using live human uh, smallpox. So the actual virus was being uh, injected or inserted into the skin often of uh, a patient who lacked immunity to it. Right. Um, and it was an extremely dangerous way of, uh, you know, of, of combating, uh, of combating, of, of providing herd immunity in essence, is what, what contemporaries were doing at the time. And at a certain point in the 18th century, the Spanish state, uh, the, the Bourbons, is, that's the, the dynasty that was ruling Spain at the time, became very interested in increasing revenues from the Americas. And that meant Mexico in particular. Mexico was uh, the site of, of major mining centers in the north at the time and was generating a lot of, of, of uh, revenues, both in the form of, of tribute and taxes on, on that mining activity. And the Spanish state took an interest in... Um, uh, basically fomenting that kind of that kind of activity, and part of that interest in in generating greater greater wealth, which eventually it managed to do toward the end of the eighteenth century, was to was uh, protecting the human population. And so, medical practice became a source of great anxiety and concern uh, for for Spanish rulers at the time, who wanted to do it more effectively and more efficiently. And so, to an extent, the story I tell in the book is one of a kind of um, Top-down, I suppose you'd say, imposition of new kinds of regulations having to do with preventive practice. So to make things like inoculation uh, more more widespread, if possible, um, eventually, but initially to do what might look to us to be rather um, backward, I suppose, or, 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 or basic somehow, which was to impose quarantines on communities, entire communities that were affected by outbreaks of of an epidemic. And so it meant, um, in a way, uh, erecting a lot of cordons around communities that had been infected to ensure that, that, that the contagion didn't pass from one community to the next, right? And so inoculation and, ev and eventually vaccination were supposed to be more uh, effective and less uh, invasive and disruptive uh, methods by which to combat epidemics. What I'm arguing in the book is that, in, in fact, in practice, the adoption of those methods came about in part through collaborations on the ground. Um, that in the midst of epidemics, a lot of communities that were quite upset about the fact that they'd been placed under quarantine um, agitated for this alternate approach to medicine, right, to preventive medicine, which is to say that they, they would just inoculate. And eventually they would use vaccination, which was in effect a safer means of injecting cowpox vaccine into human bodies in order to protect against disease. So it's a way of um, the way I presented in, in the book is sort of a, an initiative that is to an extent, you know, by the state, by the bourbon state, but that has a lot of input from communities across uh, what was the viceroyalty of New Spain or what becomes uh, the Republic of Mexico uh, in the 19th century. And, you know, so, so it, it, is, it is a matter of thinking about public health campaigns as um, a rather complicated kind of marriage between a lot of different communities and a lot of different interests, including, you know, priests and estate owners and village elders who are responsible for coordinating communities during these epidemic outbreaks and during public health campaigns, but also this Atlantic 
really global interest in in how to uh, ensure the health of a population because the health of a population represents the wealth of nations in this moment, right? To cite uh, Adam Smith here. So the the medical technology that that we're talking about that really is at the center of the case study in the second half of the book um, is a kind of pragmatic um, solution or resolution of of epidemic outbreaks that are still quite pervasive and still quite uh, destructive of society and and mining production and agricultural production um, and 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 of the labor force itself. Right? Um, I, I, is that is that help sort of with the background a little bit? I wonder. I, wonder. I was hoping you could explain a little bit about how um, your approach to medicine at this period in science generally in the empire is is different than what we've seen in the field um, over the past twenty years, where we've seen a lot more interest in colonial science in the Spanish Empire. And what are you trying to do differently here? Uh, that's a really great question. I mean, this is you know it's. <laughs> It, this is the kind of thing we 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 we're, we're, we're expert at doing is kind yeah. of justifying our own project. But really, I think the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I don't know if what I'm doing here is actually all that new. I think it's up to you and other people to tell me. But here's what I think I'm doing that's new. Um, to put it in these terms, I a lot of the interest in the past twenty years has been in what I would characterize as as ethnomedicine. It is sort of trying to understand endogenous healing practices at a communal level, right? Um, to try to get a, get a greater sense of the sort of epistemologies of communities, that their ways of understanding disease and its transmission, the insider perspectives, what anthropologists call uh, emic categories, right? The, the, the terms and categories that actors actually use in order to oh. diagnose and frame and contend with illness. My sense is that the field in the last 20 years is very much moved in that direction, right? But we want a, a better appreciation of indigenous American, uh, African descended sort of sites and modes of healing. And maybe you would, you know, there, there's different ways to characterize trends in, in, in medical history in the last 20 years. But I think one of the strong ones really is, is the one, the, one of the ones that comes through quite, quite powerfully in a lot of publications in the last 20 years is that kind of uh, ethnographic or ethno-historical or, or ethno-medical, I think is, is the best term, um, appreciation of lay healing methods, right? And one of the arguments I think in the book is that there's a, a way in which that, that, that local healing knowledge funds state programs uh, and is transformed in the process of shaping those programs, right? So it is, it is sort of both so I I think um, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is bring that background into conversation with an understanding of of what we might characterize today as a kind of national public health system, right? Um, so if you think about, let's say, um, social medicine in France, why is it that there's such great uh, neonatal care in the 20th century, right? Why is it that, that there's great maternal practices across the nation, despite great socioeconomic disparity, despite great uh, ethno-racial diversity, right? It has to do in, in part, I think, because of the way that France was able to build uh, an infrastructure for public health in the 20th century. So if you go back to the period that I study, if you go back to the early modern period, 
on infrastructure for public health, <clears throat> it doesn't exist, right? There isn't a, a national infrastructure for public health. And yet we have, at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, what amounts to a national public health initiative that was, in fact, quite successful across the entire viceroyalty of Mexico. And it, and it raises a question that, to my mind, hasn't been addressed or hadn't been addressed in the literature of, let's say, the past 20 years, as you proposed, right? How, how does a, an infrastructure come into being that can support a complex, complicated, state-managed, for a moment at least, public health program, right? So I think uh, part of the answer uh, draws, draws on all of the sophisticated uh, ethno- ethno-history that's been produced in the last couple of decades, where we know that communities have a lot of ideas of their own about what good healing means, right? About what, uh, you know, what's safe for their children, about what's healthy for their children, right? And as long as the state refuses to respect those traditions, it, there's very little success that a national program, what I'm calling a national program, that is to say this vaccination campaign that, that, that comes into being early in the 19th century, has little chance of succeeding. So it is a matter of sort of trying to marry these two different frameworks, one sort of highly ethnographic and local, the other national or Atlantic, if you prefer, to try to understand, uh, to borrow from the, 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 the anthropologist James Scott, how state programs, not only why they fail, but also when they succeed, why it is that they succeed. And as, as I saw it, we didn't have an adequate answer to that question when I began my research. People hadn't um, given us, as I, to, my, to my view, a sufficient explanation for how it is that we have a national medical program coming into being when we don't have an infrastructure for it in the first place, right? And so it led me in the book to turn to other kinds of institutions, political, religious, cultural, to try to understand how those sinews uh, for, for public health came into being. Um, so it, so to, to take a stab at sort of what I think is novel about this work is we have this moment that actually resembles in many ways modern 20th century medical programs, a story of success in this global vaccination campaign, which I'll talk about a little bit more maybe later in 1804, that, 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 that sails from Spain to the Americas to introduce vaccination to the entirety of the continent um, but we didn't have a lot of explanations for why it succeeded and why it continued to be propagated. That is, the vaccination continued to be practiced, you know, after this expedition leaves. It has to do, I think, with these structures, these state structures that come into being and the ways in which they interact with local forms of knowledge. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's the way I envision the project, I think, now after spending a lot of time with it is a kind of bringing into conversation these different fields of scholarship, um, um, one of them really coming into being, I think, quite recently, as you suggest, I mean, the last, I'd say the last 20, 30 years, and, and, and through this kind of um, conversation really between history and anthropology. So the project wouldn't have been possible without all of that, all of that, you know, all of that knowledge and scholarship on, on the sort of uh, exigencies of local healing communities in Mexico. Um, I just tried to bring it in the conversation or to put it in a framework that was, I think, a little more um, global, I guess we could say, in order to try to explain some of these questions that I had. 
I think you're making a fascinating contribution. Um, and one of the things, it, it kind of was related to the last thing you were saying, how you were trying to bring this more local perspective to a more global kind of approach. And I, I was wondering how gender fits into that, because I think you do um, use gender in different chapters in the book, like when you talk um, about how medical, how doctors had this universal ideas, but when it came to um, pathology and their medical practices, they kind of perpetuated ideas about gender, race, or class. And also how people, like common people, experience disease and how they responded to these campaigns and how they did it in gender terms. And I also think in, in chapter three, you kind of tackle that. So I was just wondering how, like, what you thought, you know, the, the role of gender, um, but also race and class in, like, your your story yeah the, the question of of gender and race and class i mean it's quite complicated it's difficult to know how to begin but let me let me start with the idea here that you know well if you think about the ways that um physicians and and a lot of uh elite actors in the colony at the time were thinking about disease it was something that the lower classes were responsible for themselves, that they were negligent some way in their eating habits, in their living habits, and that they were the ones to blame for the fact that they got sick. And, and that's an interesting, you know, in, in light of what we know about the social determinants of health, which includes conditions of poverty and, you know, uh, access to health care and and, and, and living conditions, um, among many other things, you know, it is, it is, um, I guess we would describe it as a remarkably, uh, paternalistic and I suppose also racist kind of position to have because of the fact that it, it was often, that kind of idea was often targeted at, uh, the indigenous sectors of, of Mexico at the time. Um, and so one way of thinking about the role of, of race is to is is to think about all of the ways that these paternalistic ideas, um, I suppose, shaped the global vaccination campaign that I describe in the second half of the book. That it is something that communities needed uh, to be grateful for. That the vaccinated uh, were were objects, but not participants. Um, that there was this kind of paternalism at all levels of these campaigns as people simply assumed that communities um, would have to get in line to vaccinate their children because, you know, there was no other remedy for their poverty and neglect and, and illness. That's one way of thinking about the role that race played in, in these public health campaigns. But what interested me more about the campaigns is the way that they involve women in particular as mothers, as caretakers in um, in, in, in some of the, the most rural areas of the viceroyalty of New Spain. In, in other words, it was there was this assumption that you'd need to secure the support and the sort of government uh, governmental sort of expertise, not only of people like priests and district governors and village elders who almost without exception were men, right? But you also needed to secure the support of parishioners and all of the people working below them, which included many, many women who, if not 
formally than informally had very important leadership roles in rural villages where this vaccination campaign arrived. Um, and so it, 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 it's a different kind of, of, of story that has to do with the ways in which women were at the central of these networks of authority that in fact made palatable um, a medical practice that was quite foreign to a lot of rural villagers at the time. Um, and so if you think of gender working in, in those ways, in, in fact, it was, it, was, it was understood by most people that if you wanted the cooperation of communities, you would have to get the cooperation of women first and foremost. And that was true of inoculation campaigns. Uh, it was true of, of quarantines. It was true of vaccination campaigns in, in the 19th century. And so women end up playing a very important role in, in the book because they were indispensable to the success of, of these campaigns. Um, you know, so there, it, it, it works, gender, race, and class are working on a variety of levels in this story. But gender is indispensable if, if I want to address one of the central questions of the book. The question that I began with was, why was it that rural villagers, you know, who had so little access to medical experimentation, who couldn't read peer-reviewed publications, who were for most of the time, in most instances, illiterate, you know, who had all kinds of reasons to mistrust uh, male officials who arrived, you know, to collect taxes in a lot of cases, but didn't do much else, why those villagers would have any reason to trust vaccinators who arrived in their town, you know, in 1804, 1805, 1806, 1807. And part of the explanation has to And it's impossible to answer that question without understanding the role of, that, that women in gender played in, in those campaigns, right? Um, that, that the reason that people handed over their children had to do with the ways in which those structures of authority at the communal level were either violated or respected. So it has to do not only with cultures of healing, but also with cultures of child rearing, of, 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 of the household, of 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 units of production in the village and so on and so forth. So I, I, I love that question. I'm, I'm really glad um, that you asked it. And, and um, there's, there's a lot of ways of, of answering it. But I think, you know, this, this idea that we have, um, um, that there's a, a unique relationship between mother and children was one that I found in a, a variety of different kinds of sources as I was researching this book. And it led me to look more closely at that relationship uh, and the way it was perceived and respected but also violated during these campaigns. And, and, and that becomes an important factor for the way that I, in the, in the way that I explain the successes of the campaigns um, in the 18th and the 19th centuries. When, um, you know, when scholars think about this period, Mexican history and Latin American history and, and the kinds of medical interventions that are going on on the part of the colonial state, which are, which are new, as you're describing, um, we often think of the, the imperial state as you know, imposing these, um, these measures onto a, a population that uh, either doesn't want them or is resisting them or um, uh, is, is, is otherwise trying to avoid them. Um, and, and here instead, you know, a lot of what you're writing about is about how these become uh, integrated into local 
practices of medicine, local ritual cultures, lo local uh, politics. Uh, can you describe a little bit about kind of on the ground about like how does the how do the um, how does the immunization efforts of the state have to adapt into these into these local situations? Yeah, that's a, another great question. I mean, of course, gender and, and, and race and class play into that as well. I, I ended up at the outset of the book referring to a Colombian communication scholar, a man named uh, Jesus Martin Barbero, who's written quite a bit on all the different kinds of media that mediate messages um, in, in contemporary Latin America. And I came across his writing only part of the way through this work, and I realized this is what I've been trying to do. You know, it's so nice to find someone who sort of encapsulates in a really elegant and, and sophisticated way the kind of assumptions and methodologies that you're kind of clumsily using, right? And basically, that's what I was doing. I was trying to understand rituals and genres and other kinds of early modern media that would uh, that that translated and, and moved across space modern medical ideas about preventive health and and objects like a vaccination needle uh, and 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 the concept of vaccination itself, the concept of preventive medicine, and so I ended up looking at a lot of different kinds of uh, analogs or counterparts, I guess you could say, to our modern media. Right? I mean, today we have things like Twitter and 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 uh, and Netflix and a lot of newspapers that people have access to that don't just mediate. The, the message, but actually become the content of the message, right? I mean, that's the substance of what we gain about anything from politics to, um, you know, vaccinations to uh, other kinds of matters of import to us. In the early modern period, there were things like sermons. Um, you know, there were a lot of processions that ended up incorporating the vaccinators, but also the, the vaccine uh, in, in the place of, of, of the body of Christ, which would often provide the kind of focus for those kinds of rituals. Um, and then in that way, sort of integrate public health programs and medical technologies into the space of the village or into the space of the parish, into the actual physical space of the church in a lot of cases. Um, and, and in effect, kind of sacralized that, that practice, right? And so in order to understand the, the ways in which this wasn't just a top-down imposition, you have to also, I think, understand the ways that all of these rituals ended up um, working across fields that we might consider distinct today, right? And so it, it's one reason that sort of science and religion and medicine, you know, as, as categories of analysis or interpretation um, have to be uh, transgressed to understand what was happening in this moment, right? Because you had medical procedures and practices working in religious spaces all of the time or finding their way into sermons and pastoral letters um, in order to explain to parishioners what it was that was happening to them and their community and to put it in terms that were accessible in the view of bishops and priests and so forth, right? Um, and so it was, I guess, I mean, you know, that is... That is at the center of this project, I suppose, the way that that these, you know, forms of, of knowledge and practices move across distinct fields. And it's one of the reasons that I that I hesitate to call this just history of medicine. It, it, it doesn't quite look like that. Right. When you read it, it's it's this Frankenstein 
of a book that's about rituals and religion and divine explanations for epidemics um, as much as it is about medical technologies and techniques and categories and healers, right? It makes me think about what relevance this project has for, for our present moment. And one of the things that's fascinating about medicine in the 18th and early 19th centuries, to go back to this question about gender, is it wasn't assumed that only professionally trained medical practitioners would have access to vaccinating technologies, right? That's one of the most interesting things about this moment, for me at least. It was a kind of, you know, liminal moment a kind of long passage that in some senses isn't finished, isn't over today, in which it, people imagined that that a lot of other people on the ground, including women, would, including mothers, would perform the procedure on their own children, right? And, and that has to do with the ways in which this technique flowed across these different boundaries of knowledge and 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 expertise. Uh, in a rather surprisingly fluid way, I think. Um, and I think that liminal moment or that that sort of contingent quality of public health and medical practice is still with us today, or maybe we're experiencing a kind of, re- experiencing a kind of revival of, of that early modern moment. I don't know. I'd be curious to know whether you think that's true, um, at, at least in the context of places like the United States or or Mexico, where you know, increasingly in training doctors, physicians are thinking about how to have conversations with their patients and to incorporate their own kind of epistemological background, their own worldview, their own mentalities, their own outlooks, their own expertise, as opposed to thinking about these communities as simply deficient in some ways, as only deficient, as in need of correcting and education and enlightening. Right. And of course, that was happening in early modern immunization campaigns, but it was more than that as well. There was that idea that the future could look rather different and it could include women as professional healers as much as men. And we got away from that moment for a very long time. I think biomedicine has had different things to say about what a professional looks like, where training should take place, how medicine should be practiced. But I think and again, you know, I, I say this cautiously, and I'd be curious to know what you think. In the past 30 or 40 years, we've returned to this model in which it's much more co-produced and collaborative. That is to say, things like preventive medicine can incorporate a lot of different kinds of people in conversation as opposed to being something that's imposed by the healer on the patient. Well, it is um, certainly very ironic to think that this moment, you know, the late Spanish Empire in, in in Mexico is this this moment where we usually think of it as being this sort of absolutist state, as as being one in which there was actually a far more collaborative notion of how to affect public health. Right, it is ironic, surprising, all of those things. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, in order to do this, to understand, you know, how these these were subaltern populations are interacting with these doctors and interacting with these uh, instruments, these these methods, these ways of thinking about disease. Um, how, you know, methodologically and archivally, how do you get at their voices when these are cultures that are you know, overwhelmingly um, oral? That's a really great question. Right. So let me, um, well, 
let me take a stab at it. So there is a chapter on rumors, um, and, and it, it it came about as I was I was reading through a lot of reports about these campaigns and finding governors and 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 priests and administrators of all kind reporting on the kinds of things that people were saying about vaccination. So there are rumors in the book about branding and witchcraft as a kind of attempt by the Spanish state to enlist people unlawfully in the Spanish army, right? Um, that their children were going to be kidnapped for that purpose and other nefarious ends. And it got me thinking about the importance of speech as a way to focus public engagement with new instruments and objects and techniques. And so I really started to think about how that could be the point of entry, those rumors that is, could be the point of entry to a different understanding about how preventive medicine was being perceived and interpreted uh, on the ground. And so I just started collecting those rumors. I, you know, I, I didn't collect all of them, unfortunately, because I sort of started, I started noticing it about halfway through the research, but I collected as many as I could and, and, and did as much as I, I felt like I could reasonably do interpreting those rumors and trying to understand the really creative kinds of things people were saying and thinking about vaccination and what that tells us about their understanding of the state program, about power relationships and inequalities, about their own position in relation to these campaigns, um, and about what they thought they could contribute to the outcome. Um, and so that was one way that I that I tried to sort of get a sense of interpretation or perspective perception, I guess, of this, of this moment at different levels from, you know, science, you know, scientists and, and, and professional physicians all the way to, um, district governors and, and parents and, and perhaps even the children themselves, although it's much more difficult to get at the children's perspective, right? I mean, that's something that I wish, I wish I could have done more with, and I, I just didn't know how to do it. I can also say in, in the question of sources, it's really nice to have, you know, a new cache of documents that no one's ever looked at before uh, fall into your lap, basically, which is what happened to me part of the way through this project. Um, you probably know a bit about this, but there were a lot of a lot of documents that were basically lumped together during the years of, 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 of the insurgency when Mexico was at war. Um, and and not doing a lot to archive the kinds of documents that were being produced uh, in those years from roughly about you know 1810 to 1818. And recently, the National Archive in Mexico began uh, cataloging all of that material and making it available to researchers. And you can imagine that's like manna from heaven, right? That's just like the best kind of of uh, of moment because then it allowed me to say something about the way that this practice persisted beyond the moment of this global expedition, this global vaccinating expedition in 1804, when these physicians arrived with the support of Spanish state, of the Spanish state to to vaccinate across uh, across the kingdoms of of the Americas, basically. And the question that hadn't been addressed at that moment was, well, what happened when the state pulled its support? Right? What happened when the resources for these campaigns went away? And because of this documentation, I was actually able to say something about how those practices, those practices in preventive medicine persisted through very difficult years of, of civil war and, 
insurgency. And so part of it, you know, it's this, this, this mantra, we're only, we're only as good as our sources. That's very true in this moment. It allowed me to say something more about the global vaccination campaign beyond it being sort of this biopolitical means of disciplining populations as Foucault might, might understand it. That might be true of the moment of the expedition when it, it could be rather heavy handed in certain respects, but it wasn't, I think, true of the years after for certain. It might have been sort of disciplining or punitive in certain episodes, but it's much more difficult to argue that it was the case uh, as a process and as a policy after the expedition team left Mexico. And uh, and so I'm I'm very grateful, you know, for all of the archivists and all of the all of the the workers at the National Archive in Mexico uh, for for making that material available because otherwise it would have meant a, a lot of a lot of sort of schlepping around to different, you know, parish archives uh, and, and, and local judicial archives, in addition to try to get get some access to those materials, presuming that they they just remained in the provinces, right? Um, so the, the sources have been quite important for me. I mean, without the kinds of materials that I had, I, I wouldn't have been able to to get a sense of different perspectives across classes and 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 gender, but also I think chronologically through time, um, because the book happens to pass over a very difficult moment in, 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 in the history of Mexico, where a lot of these resources were destroyed uh, or not made available, not, not archived. You know, so, I mean, thinking about this, um, I've been thinking more and more about how there is this, uh, you know, the cooperation and the tensions and the ways in which the, um, immunization is adopted in these rural communities. You know, the first, about a year ago or so, I interviewed uh, Professor Martha Few about her book about the immunization campaign in, in Guatemala, you know, at this at the same moment. Uh, and there she found a, a, a good deal more violence involved in these efforts. I wonder why do you think there was a difference of how these uh, unrolled in in Guatemala, which is you know neighboring um, some of these communities that you're looking at, uh, and, and in colonial Mexico. Right, that's a great question, and I and I'm, I still try, I still struggle with an explanation for this. Right, the 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 easy answer is that of course these are different places, and there's going to be some variability, some variation in in sort of the approach. Uh, you know, the, the highlands that she's studying was a very uh, racially fragmented and 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 uh, and conflictive kind of place um, so th- that could be part of the, the the explanation right and I found I found instances of, of flagrant racism uh, of, of coerced vaccination people basically being dragged to to the vaccination station against their will in Mexico as well the 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 rest of the explanation I think has to do in part with the size of the place that I was considering, right? I mean, I, I I do think there was more variation across space than we have a sense of from from just Guatemala, which is a smaller place. It's much smaller than 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 than, than the region of of the viceroyalty of 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 New Spain, right? Vastly vastly larger. We're talking about much much more variability in terms of terrain, in terms of in terms of actual administrative and political structures and institutions, in terms of the ethno-racial composition of these regions across across the viceroyalty, right? Uh, 
Um, and so I think I think the the one of the lessons in in comparing the two our two studies is that there there are many more stories to be told about public health in the early modern period than just one, right? Um, to go back to to Foucault's sort of me- metaphor and historical take on epidemics and and medical practice, that can't be the only story that we tell about medical practice and states in relation to societies, right? It is one story, and it and it's certainly true in some places and times, but um, I don't think it's the only one. I don't think it's the only one, and that's why it's useful to have, you know, a number of studies across regions and, and in the Americas, and it would be really fantastic to have more studies for North America. I think uh, that that can that can provide a point of contrast with with Spanish America. Um, we also have Adam Warren's fantastic book on Peru, um, which also sort of tackles that that um, that moment of the vaccinating expedition in 1804 and 1805. Another explanation for the differences in interpretation may have to do with the focus on that moment, right? Um, if you're looking at the expedition itself, you'll have a particular kind of interpretation of what public health looks like. If you move before and after it, you'll have different kinds of understandings of the legacies of that moment, I think. And I think, and so, and so an- another way of addressing that difference is to, to ask about uh, period or chronology, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the 19th century in general is a very chaotic moment and the state simply wasn't in a position uh, to impose any kind of policies on communities in much of, 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 Latin, of Latin America, but especially Mexico when it came to um, matters of public health, right? It also wasn't really in its interest to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was on the radar of a lot of liberal politicians in much of Mexico in the 19th century, which is to say that if you, if you continue to move forward in time, um, vaccination can look more or less coercive Right, depending on the political projects of the state in any given moment, um, and I think all of those factors—I mean, the, the spatial, ethno-racial, and temporal dimensions of this problem—are important to keep in mind, so that we can continue to tell, you know, multiple stories about what happened in in Spanish America. There's no doubt that something happened, and and the question continues to be, well, well, why? Um, and the the interesting thing about this story, I had a colleague, I was talking to someone about this recently, and he said, you know, it's it, it's fascinating that Mexico wasn't following anyone. You know, it wasn't it wasn't as if this was sort of a story that that it's it, 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 I hesitate to call it an optimistic story, but it's a story of at least partial success in matters of public health in a very, very early moment before we had anything resembling a modern global public health programs of the present. Right. It was a very, very early moment of success. It wasn't uh, in emulation of, let's say, the nascent Republic of the United States of, of America. It wasn't, um, um, and, and it was, I think, uh, maybe optimistic is too strong a word, but it was a, a, at least a partial success. Um, and it gives us a different kind of story than the ones we often have today about Mexico, right? And of course, working in, in the same period and, and place, you you have a similar kind of sense of, of how it contrasts with stories of gang violence and drugs and, and, and state violence and all those sorts of stories that we know quite a bit about when we think about the history of Mexico, right? I don't think I set out to do that, um, but it just felt like that was the story I was finding. It wasn't, it wasn't something familiar to me in in those terms, right? Where in, in essence, what we're talking about 
is uh, the, the 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 failure of 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 state authority in relation to its its creation of public spheres and so forth, right? Um, and quite the opposite, I think these campaigns were attentive to what we could call a kind of public or popular opinion at the time, and that there was some kind of input or, or feedback on the ground. If we can't call it a, a developed public sphere, it, it wasn't that. It was at least some kind of attention to popular public opinion on the part of the state, right? In all of those ways, um, I think this story, I hope this story is surprising to those people who know something or even a lot about the history of Mexico. I, I hope it's not a story that we feel we've heard before that we know either from the media or from histories of Mexico in the 20th century, which in fact is an extremely violent place, right? Um, but there's other stories there. And, and, I, and I think that's, I mean, I, that's, that's why we do what we do, right? To find those other stories. And so I'm very happy that we have these different studies of Spanish America in the period to provide points of contrast, because if nothing else, it gives us a sense of the the richness of the archive, the richness of experience, uh, and the richness of, 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 with any luck, historical interpretations of, of this moment. There's not one picture, one story that should prevail for all of Spanish America. It was, in fact, a very diverse place. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that, that is a, an, amazing, uh, an amazing way to, to describe this and really hits home the importance of this work, which I I can't tell you how much I admire and value it. Is there anything we, we haven't covered here that you want to make sure listeners are, are going to hear about your book before we have to close? Only the point of um, our discussion today isn't to comprehensively hit every chapter, but is there any critical aspects of the book that you just uh, really want to make sure listeners are aware of? I love that question. It's such, there's so many ways to answer it. I mean, let me take a stab at it this way. I think, you know, if, we're in a moment today where there there continues to be this kind of up this sense of opposition between religion and science, maybe, or or or, or, or people with faith claims and and modern medicine, and that has to do with sort of the anti-vaccinators and, and anti-vaccination campaigns. But it goes well beyond that particular moment in this country. And I think, you know, one of the things that a reader might take away from this book is the notion that religious people, by virtue of their faith, haven't always for that reason, been opposed to modern preventive practice, right? It's it's not, there, there isn't a sort of natural opposition between science and religion. And I can't tell you how infuriating it is to continue to read books that sort of write, position the history of medicine as one of medical science superseding religious ideas, right? And so I think there may be, as much as historians hate to talk about lessons in their work, there may be some lessons in this book in what it tells us about the various dispositions of very religious people, many of them Catholics, toward modern medicine in the early modern period. That it, it can't be a, a, a sort of assumption about fatalism or fear or sus suspicion. There were a lot of those things, but but there were a lot of other things as well. And, and I think it brings a different kind of respect and, and really earnestness in trying to understand the complaints and the objections that people do have when they refuse to vaccinate their children today. It's something that it's an important matter, right? I mean, it is we would like to see children protected from very terrible diseases. Um, but the way to go about doing that, I think, is to, to listen and have conversations uh, as opposed to sort of you know, presume 
and, and then and seek to impose one's will. And that's why this moment in in the medical profession is one that that's very heartening for me because I think practitioners are better at listening than they've ever been before. Um, and so maybe in this historical treatment, there's something there's something for readers to apply to to our present moment. Yeah. Uh, so, Paul, uh, now that this book is finished, what are what are you turning to next? I am uh, embarking on a project on salt production and consumption in Mexico. Uh, I'm trying. It's it's kind of a labor history that I guess is, you know, it's I'm still thinking about the framework, but it's trying to bring together different understandings of work uh, within a single sort of, you know narrative so that to think about sort of you know salt producers and their own devotional practices as funding this early modern industry that happened to be a, a key input in silver refining because you couldn't refine silver in this moment uh without saline solution so there's all of this salt being shipped off to the mines much of it produced by indigenous communities living on the coast or maybe near a saline well um who also happen to be, you know, thinking about their work in in religious terms, or who also happen to be organized into religious confraternities, and so I'm trying to understand this early modern productive activity in light of all of these other rituals, and to think of those rituals as a different kind of work that funds an early modern um, extractive activity, I suppose. So it's a, a bit of a departure from what I just did. Um, but no less exciting to me, at least at this moment. Yeah. Well, I uh, I look forward to that. I hope I get to to interview about you about it when it's out. Well, thanks so much for your time, Paul, and uh, thanks for writing this phenomenal book that I I really can't recommend uh, enough, and um, which will certainly has made a huge impact on my own thinking on colonial Latin America and science and medicine. I look forward to following your work. Thank thanks to both of you for for the conversation for the invitation. Again, I appreciate it.